Thank you so much for joining us today at our Savior's Church, where we are one church meeting in five different locations. And our goal is to help you on your spiritual journey to know God, find freedom, discover purpose, and make a difference in the lives around you. If you'd like to learn more about our Savior's Church or how to get involved, visit us online at OurSavior'sChurch.com. We are continuing in the book of Acts, and every week what we've been doing is building chapter by chapter. Some chapters we've spent two to three weeks in, other chapters we've kind of flown by, and maybe last week we got a chapter and a half in. Um, but I want to encourage you, if you've missed any of those weeks, or maybe you're new here and you'd like to catch up to us, you can go to our website, OurSaviorsChurch.com forward slash Broussard, and you can download all of those messages or stream them and listen to them. You can also um, take a picture of this QR code that's behind me on the screen, and just by taking the picture of it or putting it up there, it'll automatically link you to our messages, and, and your phone will take you right to those messages so that you can hear them and catch up to where we're at and where we're, we've been. So last week, we left off in chapter 21 of the book of Acts, and it's the Apostle Paul, this man whose life has been drastically transformed by God. He was once a religious leader, a Pharisee, a Jewish religious leader. And is, is there a little echo, a little buzz on me? Can y'all hear me? If, if I feel kind of cool, like I'm James Earl Jones, like I got a little, <laughs> little Darth Vader in my voice. Thank y'all. The Apostle Paul is on his third missionary journey. He's been traveling around the known world after his life was transformed by the gospel, by Jesus literally showing up to him and and revealing himself to him. This man went from this religious Pharisee to a born-again Christian. He went from killing Christians and persecuting them and putting them in jail to becoming the greatest missionary and representative of the gospel that the world has ever seen. So we were in chapter 21, and the Apostle Paul was um, getting ready to go to Jerusalem. The Bible tells us, I believe it was in chapter 18, that Paul had set his mind to go to Jerusalem and then to go to Rome. Jerusalem and Rome. And so while he was focusing his attention to go to Jerusalem, he started, something strange started happening. He started getting all of these prophecies from people telling him not to go to Jerusalem. They started telling him, if you go to Jerusalem, Paul, you're going to be put in prison. If you go to Jerusalem, Paul, bad things are going to happen. How many of you would like that to happen every Sunday morning you come to church? If you go to work on Monday, they're gonna beat you up. You might go to jail. This is what was happening to Paul. And we ended in chapter 21 telling the story of this, this prophet named Agabus. And I want to come back and recap it. This is what it says in verse, tw- verse 10, excuse me, chapter 21. Several days later, a man named Agabus, who also had the gift of prophecy, which by the way, we still believe in here very much so as a church, arrived from Judea. He came over, took Paul's belt, and bound his feet and hands with it. I want you to get the picture. Let's just say we're having dinner together. It's you and our church staff, and we're having a meal together. We're at Fizo's after church, like a lot of y'all go to. And all of a sudden, I'm talking to you, Hananiah's talking to you, and then Pastor Josh Messer stands up, walks over to you, and grabs your belt. First of all, you'd be like, that's weird. But he grabs your belt, ties your hands and your, his own hands and his own feet to it and says, the person that owns this belt, this is what's going to happen to them when they go to Jerusalem. That's what happened. This is what Agabus said. The Holy Spirit declares, so shall the owner of this belt be bound by the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem and turned over to the Gentiles. He's prophesying this horrible thing is going to happen to Paul. Verse 12, when we heard this, we and the local believers all begged Paul 
not to go to Jerusalem. Now, up until this point, it's been other people begging Paul, Paul don't go, Paul don't go, Paul don't go. Now Paul's own people are saying, Paul, don't go. We don't want to go and do this. Now, it's interesting. We, live, we love Paul and we love Paul's courage, but how about the people that were with Paul that had to go through the same things that Paul was going to go through? It's easy for Paul to go, yep, I'm going. I'm going to do this. And they're back there going, we are? We're, we're willing to do, I guess we are. We're willing to do this. They said they begged him not to go, but I love Paul's response. But he said, why all this weeping? You're breaking my heart. I'm ready not only to be jailed at Jerusalem, but even to die for the sake of the Lord Jesus. When it was clear that we couldn't persuade him, we gave up and said, the Lord's will be done. This was a man on a mission. And it didn't matter who said what. It didn't even matter if it came in the form of a prophecy. He knew God's plan and God's will for his life. Well, Pastor, isn't it ironic that he's getting these prophecies? Did he disobey God? I don't think he disobeyed God. I don't believe he disobeyed God at all because I don't believe these prophecies were warnings to him not to go. I believe they were simply predictions of what was to come. They were simply preparation for what was going to come. And Paul has already said, I'm willing to die for this. So this is not deterring me. I'm going. I believe Paul saw further than what was going to happen when he got there. And even if he didn't, God did. God knew, yes, when you get to Jerusalem, you're going to have these problems. You're going to be put in prison. Bad things are going to happen. But I believe Paul saw further than that. See, there's three types of people in this world. It's the type of people who are unwise, who don't see danger coming. They're people who are completely oblivious to danger that's coming. They don't plan for the future. They don't, they don't look forward to things. They have no savings account. So when the tire goes out, they're like, I'm, I'm sunk. Right? They, they don't think about their kids' future. They don't think about what's going to happen if they make this dumb decision today. They just don't think. That's unwise. The second category of people are the people, the people excuse me, who are wise and they see danger coming and they prepare. They know bad things could happen. They don't live in fear, but they decide to take the necessary precautions to help them get to where they need to be. Does that make sense? So you have the unwise, then you have the wise, but then you have this third category. And this is primarily what I wanna talk about today. There are those who see danger, they prepare for it, but they have the foresight to see what's on the other side of it as well. That's the third category of people. Anyone can see danger coming. Anyone can see hard times coming. But it takes someone with foresight to see what's on the other side of it. It takes someone with a vision to see what could happen once I get through this tough time. See, it's the difference between a person who says, I don't want to go through this, and a person who says, I don't want to go through, through this, but I want what's on the other side of it. Are y'all with me this morning? <laughs> Let me make it real practical. Going to the gym. How many of you wake up in the morning and you think, I don't want to go to the gym? Most of you think, I don't want to go to the gym, and guess what? You don't go to the gym. <laughs> it's the mindset of, I don't want to do this because this is going to suck. Can I say that in church? I just did. <laughs> this is going to be hard. I won't like this. This is going to be tough. But I want what's on the other side of it. So I'm going to go through it. It's like starting college. It's like disciplining your children. Most of the time, kids, let me let you in on a secret. Most of the time, we don't want to spank you. Sometimes we really do. <laughs> sometimes. And sometimes you lie to your kids. This is going to hurt me more than it. That is not true. <laughs> this is going to hurt you a lot more than it hurts me. But I'll be a little sad about it. 
It's disciplining your kids. You don't want to, but you want what's on the other side of it. Ultimately, this is Jesus going to the cross. He didn't want to do that. I love the vulnerability of the Bible that tells us in the, in the, when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, he's praying, God, if there's any other way than me going through this, I would love it, Lord, if that happened. But nonetheless, not my will, but your will be done. And the Bible goes on to say that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. In other words, for the joy he saw on the other side of the suffering, he was willing to go through it. Foresight. Foresight. Paul heard those prophecies. He he knew that it was true. He believed that it was going to happen. Let me make sure that I'm clear on something. I'm not advocating for not listening to wise counsel. I'm not advocating for ignoring a prophetic word that you've been given. I'm not advocating for that at all. What I'm talking about is the Bible actually tells us we need to hear and heed wise counsel. You need to surround yourself. In, in the multitude of counsel, the scripture says, says there's safety, right? There's safety in the multitude of counsel. We need to do that. But be, let me be very, very clear. When you know that you know that you know it is God's will, that supersedes that. That it hasn't happened in my life very often, but there have been a few moments in my life when even the wisest counsel that I've received, I knew it was not God's will for my life. And in those moments, you have to weigh that. You have to weigh that. And you can't expect other people to make your decisions for you. Because you have, here's why you have to make your decision, because you have to live with the consequences. When you relegate it to, well, you told me to do this, you're shifting the blame. Yeah, but I don't have the consequences. You do. You do. We're supposed to heed wise counsel. But the thing that supersedes wise counsel is the will of God. And we see here the will of God for Paul's life. And we're going to get to that in a moment. Verse 15. After this... We packed our things and left for Jerusalem. In other words, Paul was like, I ain't listening to y'all, we're going. Verse 16, some believers from Caesarea accompanied us, and they took, him, they took us to the home of Nason, a man originally from Cyprus and one of the early believers. When we arrived, the brothers and sisters in Jerusalem welcomed us warmly. So here's this thing is starting off nicely. Paul gets to Jerusalem and the Christians there and the Jewish people are welcoming him, but it's the Jewish Christians, the Jewish Christians. Verse 18, the next day Paul went with us. Who is us? Let me stop right there. Us is Luke, the author of this book. Luke, who wrote the gospel of Luke, also wrote the book of Acts. He's now a part of this team of people that's following Paul to Jerusalem. The next day, Paul went with us to meet with James, and all the elders of the Jerusalem church were present. After greeting them, Paul gave a detailed account of these things, excuse me, of the things God had accomplished among the Gentiles through his ministry. So Paul is sitting now and meeting with who? James. Who was James? It wasn't James, the the brother of John. He had already died in the book of Acts. We already saw that. James, the apostle who followed Jesus, he died earlier in the book of Acts. This is James, the half-brother of Jesus. He was the leader and the spokesperson of the church. Wait a minute, pastor. I grew up in church being taught that Peter was the leader of the church, that Peter was the first pope. It's not true. The leader of the church was Jesus' half-brother, James. He was the leader of the church in Jerusalem. And so Paul is here meeting with them and he's giving them an account of his missionary journeys, of all of the things that God was accomplishing and doing through his ministry and through the team of people that he was with. And they were praising God for it. They were praising God. It goes on, verse 20, after hearing this, they praised God and they, then they said, you know, dear brother, how many thousands of Jews have also believed and they all follow the law of Moses very seriously. 
James is saying, listen, great things are happening there. God is doing a lot of things here. There's a lot of Jewish people who've come to the faith and who are following Jesus. Verse 21, but the Jewish believers here in Jerusalem have been told that you are teaching all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn their backs on the laws of Moses. They've heard that you teach them not to circumcise their children or follow other Jewish customs. What should we do? They will certainly hear that you have come. Isn't it funny how rumors can spread so quickly? Isn't it funny how gossip can normally be traced back to a half-truth? There's a whole lot of gossip and rumors that's surrounding this man named Paul. And it's not even true. Paul wasn't going around teaching all of the Jewish people that they don't have to follow the law of Moses. He was teaching the Gentiles they didn't have to follow the law of Moses. Because they didn't. They were brought into the kingdom through the blood of Jesus, not through the laws of Moses like the Jewish people. But yet in Jerusalem, all of these Jewish people are believing that Paul is teaching these things to the Jews. That's a big problem for Paul. Verse 23, they come up with a solution. This is what James says. Here's what we want you to do. We have four men here who have completed their vow. Go with them to the temple and join them in the purification ceremony, paying for them to have their heads ritually shaved. Then everyone will know that the rumors are all false and that you yourself observe the Jewish law. Here is the spiritual authority in Paul's life telling him, we want you to go to the temple, Paul, and be a part of this vow, or at least be with these men who are fulfilling this vow. We talked about this same vow a few weeks ago. What vow was it? It was the Nazarite vow. It was almost like what we would consider fasting and prayer. It was a voluntary sacrifice, that time, a sacrificial time that you made to God. It was 30 days of not cutting your hair. It was 30 days of not drinking wine. Some of you need to go a lot longer than 30 days. <laughs> or even touching grape products, right? When products made with grapes. Who was, a, who was a Nazarite we know in the Bible? Samson. Samson's mom dedicated him as a Nazarite. His entire life was a, Nazar- was a Nazarite vow where he couldn't cut his hair and he couldn't drink wine or touch anything with grapes or he couldn't touch dead animals. This was the vow that these Jewish men had sacrificially made and now... Paul's spiritual authority is saying, I want you to go with them, Paul, and show the Jews that you're still a Jewish man, that you're still one of us. And Paul listened. And because he listened, let me give you a quick spoiler alert. He goes to jail. Because he listened to the spiritual authority in his life, he went to jail. He was beaten. I thought about this many, many times reading this passage, and it's, it's puzzled me many, many times. Wait, he, he listened, he did the right thing, and then he still got in trouble. Now, for some of us, we would say, well, fine, I'm never going back to that church. I listened to them, and bad things happened. I listened to them, and things got worse. Why do we always assume that God's will for our lives is the path of least resistance? Why do we always make that assumption that God wants it to be easy for me? It's not the truth. We assume that, but it is not the case. It's not at all true in this case for Paul. Sometimes, listen to me, hear me, sometimes God uses your pain to get you right where he wants you to be. Sometimes he takes those tough situations, those tough moments, those painful things in our lives, those those moments when people turn on you, those moments where you lost that job, and he turns it around for your good and for his glory. We always assume that God wants it to be easy. I'm here to tell you, God doesn't always want it to be easy. As a matter of fact, sometimes God wants it to be hard. Why? Because he's working out something inside of you. 
He's working it out. We don't like that. I don't like that. I would much rather it be easy. But that's not how you grow. It's not even how you get to the will of God for your life. See, I believe Paul understood that. He knew that. I went to the church, I went to church, I listened to the pastor preach, I started obeying the word of God, and my relationship got worse. I started obeying God, and I started losing friends. Sometimes it does get worse before it gets better. And sometimes that is absolutely what God wants in your life. That goes against everything that some of you believe. I know that. That has nothing to do with living your best life now and being the best possible you that you can be. But it's the word of God. It's the will of God. Pastor, I did what you preached and it got worse. Yeah, but keep going. Because if you keep going, one day it's going to get better. If you keep going, you're going to see what's on the other side of your obedience. I'll never forget hearing Miss Michelle Aranza say that. You never know what's on the other side of your obedience. You never know what's on the other side. If you will stay the course, if you won't quit, if you'll keep going, if you'll keep fighting, if you'll keep believing, who knows what's on the other side of your obedience to God. One day you will. Even if it's bad here on earth, when you stand before him, I promise you, you will not regret saying, yes, Lord. You will never regret the sacrifices you made for him in this life. I know I've mentioned this multiple times, but I'm still on this stage thinking about Lisa Branningham, who we did a funeral last week. That woman doesn't regret a single thing that she did for God. She doesn't regret a single time she was in this building at 10 o'clock at night with, a vac- with one of those backpack vacuums on that was two times the size of her vacuuming these pews instead of being at home in her comfort. She doesn't regret a thing. Paul, his goal was to go to Jerusalem. Then his goal was to go to Rome. And he does get there. It happens. But he gets there in a way that I don't even think he expected to get there. See, even people's mistakes can lead you right to the will of God for your life. Hear me. Even people's mistakes can get you right to the perfect will of God for your life. Let me tell you what that word is called. Providence. Divine providence. That is God taking normal things, normal situations in your life and divinely guiding you right to the place you need to be. It's called divine providence. Verse 25, as for the Gentile believers, they should do what we already told them to in the letter. This is James talking, going back to when he told Paul, he wrote, sent a letter with Paul to the Gentiles explaining what their role needed to be as believers, as Christians, that they were, did not have to follow the laws of Moses, but these were the things they had to do. They should abstain from eating food offered to idols, from consuming blood or the meat strangled of, excuse me, of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. Now, one of these things is moral that we should continue we don't, we, we don't live in sexual immorality. The Bible tells us not to do that. If you're living your life in sexual immorality, I don't say this with any judgment in my heart, but you should repent. You should repent. Anything outside of the covenant of marriage that God has set up between one man and one woman is sin in his eyes. What do we do with that? We repent and we turn. If you're living with your girlfriend, repent. If you're living with your boyfriend, repent. If you're sleeping with them outside of the covenant of marriage, repent. He tells us that. Then these other two things that he tells us about avoiding blood, what was he saying? 
He was basically saying these were, the Jew, these were things that were very vitally important to the Jews and they were supposed to live by. And if there was going to be a relationship between the Jews and the Gentiles, we can't allow the Gentiles to offend the Jewish believers to the point of, of, of division. So do these things for the sake of unity within the body. See, sometimes we have to be willing, as I've said before, we have to be willing to lay down our rights for what's right. You have to be willing to lay down, I have a right to this, right? Don't I have the ability? Yes, you do. But if you're going to hurt and offend your brother, is it right? Is it right? Verse 26. So Paul went to the temple the next day with the other men. They had already started the purification ritual. So he publicly announced the date when their vow would end and sacrifices would be offered for each of them. Verse 27. The seven The seven days were almost ending when some of the Jews, listen to this, from the province of Asia. We're going to come back to that in a moment. Saw Paul in the temple and roused a mob against him. They grabbed him yelling, men of Israel, help us. This is the man who preached against our people everywhere and tells everyone to disobey the Jewish laws. He speaks against the temple and even defiles his holy place by bringing in Gentiles. For earlier that day, they had seen him in the city with, with Trophimus, a Gentile from Ephesus, and they assumed Paul had taken him into the temple. Paul is in big trouble because now, if you remember, when we talked about Ephesus two weeks ago, there was a big giant riot that happened, and Paul called that the, the beast of Ephesus. In other words, there was a spirit behind. It was a spiritual battle that this giant riot took off, and now we see people from the province of Asia who knew this man Trophimus from Ephesus, which means they were probably from Ephesus or at least close to Ephesus. So people who were part of that big riot in Ephesus are now in Jerusalem. And they're stirring up all of this trouble now against Paul. Christianity is spiritual warfare. It is a battle. Our battle is not against flesh and blood. It is against principalities and powers and rulers of wickedness in high places. This is what we do in this, this, the devil was not gonna easily just give up his territory. And now there's people from that place in Jerusalem attacking Paul. Verse 30, the whole city was rocked by this accusation, excuse me, these accusations, and a great riot followed, just like in Ephesus. Paul was grabbed and dragged out of the temple and immediately the gates were closed behind him. Now, honestly, I'd prepared for this message and I just saw this this morning. It says the, the gates were closed behind him. Immediately, they drag Paul out. And I'm going to tell you why in a minute. But immediately, they drag Paul out. And the first thing they do, why does the Bible give us this insight? Why does it say they closed the gate? Of course they closed the gate. It wants us to see something. They immediately closed the gate. They were rejecting Paul. They rejected his message. They closed the door. We don't want that. We are not going to accept these Gentiles. It's not going to happen, Paul. We'll we'll talk more about this in a moment. Another riot breaks out. Why? Because the enemy does not want to give up his territory. And the Bible says they dragged Paul out of the temple. Now, let me explain something about the temple, the Jewish temple. It was massive. It was about 35 acres big. That's how big the Jewish temple was. And there were courtyards, there was the outer courtyard, the inner courtyard, and then the Holy of Holies. In the outer courtyard, you had a place for the Gentiles. They would allow the Gentiles to come to the outer court. Why? Because they could exchange money. We're okay with your money. Give us your money, but you can't be a part of us. So, as a matter of fact, this outer courtyard was the very place that Jesus came and turned over the tables. The same place. They would allow these Gentiles to come here. And this is where they dragged Paul out. In other words, they're saying, Paul, we're accusing you of taking one of these Gentiles and bringing them into the holy place, which didn't happen. It wasn't even true. They dragged him out and they beat him, rejecting him, kicking him out. This is how strongly the Jews felt about Gentiles being in their, their holy temple. 
The Romans who were in charge of Jerusalem at this time, the the Jews weren't governing themselves. The Romans who were in charge, they had taken away the Jews' ability to, to have capital punishment. Meaning that they couldn't govern themselves and kill someone by their law. The killing of that person had to come from the Romans, except in one instance. The only instance that they allowed the Jews to kill someone was when a Gentile went into the temple. That's how strongly these Jews felt about Gentiles being a part of their holy temple. Verse 31, as they were trying to kill him, Paul Word reached the commander of the Roman regent that all Jerusalem was in an uproar. He immediately called out his soldiers and officers and ran down among the crowd. When the mob saw the commander and the troops coming, they stopped beating Paul. Now, in that day, the Romans did not take kindly to mobs. They did not take kindly to riots. As a matter of fact, if you were a Roman soldier or a leader and there was a riot that broke out that you didn't control, they just killed you because they wanted to keep law and order. Verse 33, then the commander arrested him and ordered him bound with two chains. He asked the crowd who, excuse me, he asked (coughs) who he was and what he had done. Let me stop right there because I don't want you to miss this because this is big. The Bible tells us that Paul was arrested and ordered, he ordered him to be bound with two chains. This was the last time that Paul would ever be a free man. This was the last moment in Paul's life that he would be a free man. For the rest of his life, he would be either imprisoned or under some kind of house arrest for the rest of his life. Talk about not understanding God's will and God's purpose. Let's keep going. Some shouted one thing and some another. Since he couldn't find out the truth in all the uproar and confusion, he ordered that Paul be taken to the fortress. As Paul reached the stairs, the mob grew so violent, the soldiers had to lift him onto their shoulders to protect him. And the crowd followed behind him, shouting, kill him, kill him. They hated Paul and they hated everything Paul stood for. And really what they hated were the Gentiles. They hated the Gentiles. Paul would be in prison for the rest of his life. Number one, because it was the will of God, but number two, because of the hatred of these Jewish people to the Gentiles, excuse me. Verse 37, I'm I'm giving you a lot of scripture, but I wanna get to the, the main point of this, so just bear with me. I promise you're gonna be out of here by 145. Um, I'm just joking. As Paul, verse 37, as Paul was about to be taken inside, he said to the commander, may I have a word with you? Do you know Greek? The commander asked, surprise. Aren't you the Egyptian who led a rebellion some time ago and took 4,000 members of the, of the assassins out into the desert? They have no idea why they're arresting Paul. They think he's an Egyptian. They don't even know, but this is such an uproar that they take the man and they arrest him. No, Paul replied, I'm a Jew. I'm one of these people. I'm one of them. And and I'm a citizen of Tarsus in Silica, which is an important city. Please let me talk to these people. Verse 40, the commander agreed. So Paul stood on the stairs and motioned to the people to be quiet. Soon a deep silence enveloped the crowd and he addressed them in their own language, Aramaic. So in other words, Paul's a very intelligent man. He's speaking to this man in Greek, this Hellenistic language that they all kind of understand and know. But when he gets ready to address the crowd of Jews, he speaks to them in Aramaic, their own language. In other words, Paul is saying, let me have a conversation with my own people. These are the people shouting, kill him. These are the people saying, get rid of him. And then he asked for permission to share his testimony with them. Why is this so important? If we're gonna preach to people, we should love them. Paul could have said, I'm done with these people as he has done in the past, but he kept coming back to them. Why? Because he loved them. Our job as Christians is not to hold up picket signs. Our job as Christians is to love our enemies. 
Our job as Christians is to love those who are in error and to speak truth that I'm not advocating for, for compromising. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about if you're going to preach to someone, you better love them. If you're going to tell them where they're wrong, you better be telling them, you better be telling them the truth and you better be doing it in love. This is the model that we see. Paul saying, let me talk to my people. Give me this moment. And this is what he shares with them. He shares with them his testimony. Now, what's ironic to me is when we first got introduced to Paul, it was a very very similar setting. When we were first introduced to Paul in the book of Acts, he was on the other side of this. And he was giving permission to the crowd to kill this Christ follower named Stephen, the very first martyr in the Bible. So our introduction to Paul in Jerusalem is him saying, kill him, kill that Jesus follower. Now here we are 20 years later in Jerusalem and it's Paul that they're yelling kill. And in his love, he shares God's love with them. Let me just, let me stop and say these two things. Number one, no one is too far gone for God. No one is too far gone for God. There's never been a person that God cannot change their heart. Do they let him? Do they turn? All of those things are factors that truthfully I don't fully understand. There is a tension between divine sovereignty and human responsibility that we will never understand until we stand before God. Anybody who tells you they fully understand that, they're lying. But nonetheless... God can change a person's heart. How do I know? He softened and he hardened the heart of Pharaoh. And Jerusalem is seeing a picture of this man that was once yelling, kill Stephen. He's now there sharing God's love with them about this same Messiah, Jesus. You know what? This past week, a man in our church passed away. And he was a man that some of you would never have known his story. He, he would stand in this sanctuary with his hands raised, worshiping Jesus. He went into eternity just this past week. And some of you will walk right by him and not know the incredible picture of the mercy of God that this man was. He spent 40 years in Angola prison. 40 years. Because as a young man, he made some really dumb decisions with a group of people that ended up costing him the next 40 years of his life in Angola prison. He rightfully belonged there. I think he would tell you that. In the most atrocious, hardest situations you can imagine. I've heard his brother-in-law told me it was basically akin to being in one, an African nation that is in civil war. That's what it was like being in Angola prison for this man for 40 years. He went in prison at a probably early 20s, maybe 21, 22, something like that, and gave 40 years of his life in Angola prison. Not knowing, you didn't know that, but you would sit right next to him when he lifted up his hands and worshiped Jesus, completely accepted and loved by God, completely forgiven completely washed clean, standing in heaven right now hearing words that we hope to one day hear. Well done, good and faithful servant. No one is too far gone for God. No one. I remember doing a a freedom conference in a prison. I can't remember what prison it was. I think it was in St. Gabriel, Louisiana or St. Helena, somewhere like that. And I this man came up to me at the end of the, the Freedom Conference and shared his testimony with me that he was a pastor's kid. And as a young man, he committed murder. And his family and everyone else washed their hands of him. Yet here he was in prison, getting set free at this Freedom Conference, devoting his life afresh to Jesus. That's the mercy of God. No one is too far gone for him. No one. And this is Paul. There's a great picture of that. Verse, chapter 22, verse 1. This is what he says to the crowd. Brothers and, and esteemed fathers. Paul said, listen to me as I offer my defense. 
When they heard him speaking in their own language, the silence was even greater. So he quieted the crowd down. They're yelling, kill him, kill him, kill him. He quiets the crowd down and they start, listen, when he starts speaking in their own language, they all shut up because they want to hear what he's going to say. Then Paul said, I'm a Jew born in Tarsus, a city in Silica, and I was brought up and educated here in Jerusalem under Gamaliel, a brilliant teacher who they all knew. As his student, I was carefully trained in our Jewish laws and custom. I became very zealous to honor God in everything I did, just like all of you today. As I persecuted the followers of the way, hounded some of them to death, arresting both men and women and throwing them into prison. The high priest and the whole council of elders can testify that this is so. For I received letters from them to our Jewish brothers in Damascus, authorizing me, giving me the ability to go and to throw these followers of the way into prison excuse me, followers of the way from there to Jerusalem in chains and to be punished. Verse six, as I was on the road approaching Damascus about noon, a very bright light from heaven suddenly shone down around me. I fell to the ground and I heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It was Jesus. Who are you, Lord, I asked. And the voice replied, I am Jesus the Nazarene, the one you are persecuting. The people with me saw the light but didn't understand the voice speaking to me. I asked, what should I do, Lord? And the Lord told me, get up and go to Damascus, and there you will be told everything you are to do. I was blinded by the intense light and had to be led by the hand to Damascus by my companions. Let me just stop there for a moment. When we don't know Jesus, we're blind. We're blinded. God has to open up our eyes so that we see. I love the song Amazing Grace. I once was lost, but now I'm fine. I once was blind, but now I I see. Paul's a great picture of that because he physically was blind. A man named Ananias lived there. He was a godly man, deeply devoted to the law and well regarded by all the Jews of Damascus. He came and stood beside me and said, Brother Saul, regain your sight. In that very moment, I could see what an amazing picture. Verse 14, then he told me, the God of our ancestors has chosen you, you who were just persecuting us week, a week ago. God has chosen you to know his will and to see the righteous one and hear him speak. For you are here, excuse me, for you are to be his witness, telling everyone what you have seen and heard. What are you waiting for? Get up and be baptized. Have your sins washed away by calling on the name of the Lord. How are our sins washed away? By calling on the name of Jesus. Paul had a plan. People saw Paul one way, but God had the foresight to see far beyond it. God saw beyond where Paul was. God sees beyond where you are. God sees beyond where your relationships are. God sees beyond where your children are. God sees beyond where your your job situation is. God sees. He has the foresight. Verse 17. After I returned to Jerusalem, I was praying in the temple and fell into a trance. I saw a vision of Jesus saying to me, hurry, leave Jerusalem for the people here won't accept your testimony about me. But Lord, I argued, stop there for a moment. But Lord, I argued. He's having a serious debate with Jesus. I think sometimes God allows us to do that. When he sees our heart and he sees our motives, I believe he he allows that. When it's selfish motives, he's not gonna allow that. Sometimes you just need to hear, yes, you just need to say yes, Lord, and follow along with it. But here we see Paul saying, but Lord, they certainly know that in every synagogue I've imprisoned and I've beat those who believed in you. And I was in complete agreement when, you, when your, your witness Stephen was killed. I stood by and kept the coats that took off, excuse me, they took off when they stoned him. But, Lord, but the Lord said to me, go. You never win an argument with God. He'll allow you sometimes to do it, but you never win. Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. God told him to leave, 
But Paul's love for the Jews was so great he wanted to stay. That's what he's sharing with this, this mob of people. He's saying, I love you enough to want to tell you this truth, even though you want to kill me. Verse 22, the crowd listened until Paul said that word. What word? Gentiles. Because when he said that, that meant in their minds that God himself was putting the Gentiles on a level playing field with the Jews, and they were having none of that. They were with Paul until that inclusion of the Gentiles. They couldn't see past their own prejudice. They couldn't see past their own stubborn way, their own will of doing. They could not see the greatest missionary in the world that the world has ever seen was standing in front of them pleading to be born again, pleading for them to receive Jesus. They couldn't see it because they were blinded by their own prejudice and their own evil ways. Verse 24, the commander brought Paul inside and ordered him lashed with whips to make him confess his crime. He wanted to find out why the crowd had become so furious. When they tied Paul down to lash him, Paul said to the officer, standing there. Is it legal for you to whip a Roman citizen who hasn't even been tried? When the officer heard this, he went to the commander and asked, what are you doing? This man is a Roman citizen. So the commander went over and asked Paul, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? Yes, I certainly am, Paul replied. I am too, the commander muttered, and it cost me plenty. And I love Paul's response. God foresaw all of this. Paul said, but I'm a citizen by birth. The soldiers who were about to interrogate Paul quickly withdrew when they heard he was a Roman citizen. The commander was frightened because he had ordered him bound and whipped. That commander could have been killed if they would have whipped Paul. It was against the law for them to hurt a Roman citizen without a trial. The next day, the commander ordered the leading priest into session with the Jewish high council. He wanted to find out what the trouble was all about, so he released Paul to have him standing there. Pastor, what are you telling us? Why are you telling us all of this? God knew all of these things when he sent Paul to Jerusalem. God knew that they couldn't touch Paul. God knew Paul would be put in the position where he could preach the gospel one last time to the Jewish people, giving them the opportunity right there in their holy temple to turn. God knew all of that. Those people who were prophesying didn't. Those people who were warning Paul didn't. But God has the foresight. God has the foresight in your life. If he's asking you to do something you don't want to do that you know is going to be hard, trust him. Trust the process. He knows what's on the other side of it. He knows what's on the other side of it. Paul's goal, what was his goal? Jerusalem, then Rome. Paul eventually got to Rome. And guess who ended up paying for him to get to Rome? The Roman government. They paid his fee. They protected him. They helped him get there. All because God knew. God foresaw. We're almost done. Chapter 23, verse 1. This Roman governor, this Roman commander has commanded Paul to stand in front of the, the high council. Verse 1 says this gazing intently at the high council, Paul began, brothers. I have always lived before God with a high, with a clear conscience. Let me just stop right there. He's standing in front of those men who want to kill him, the leaders of the Jewish people. And the Bible says he gazed intently at them. I love the courage of Paul. Could they have killed him? They were trying to. And he gazed intently at them, ready to give a defense of the gospel. Verse 2, instantly Ananias, the high priest, as soon as Paul opens up his mouth, I've, oh, guys, I've done this with a clear conscience. I've lived my life with a clear conscience. This is what the high priest does. Instantly Ananias, the high priest, commanded those close to Paul to slap him in the mouth. In other words, they're trying to put him in his place. They're trying to shut him up. They are not interested in hearing his defense. But Paul got in the flesh a little bit. Not make, Paul makes me feel better about myself. Paul said to him, God will slap you 
you corrupt hypocrite. You just got to like Paul. There's nothing holy about what he just did. He was in the flesh. He said, God will slap you, you hypocrite. What kind of judge are you to break the law yourself by ordering me to be struck like that? Those standing near Paul were like, Paul, um, do you dare insult God's high priest? Paul says, I'm sorry, brothers. This is, don't, don't miss this. I'm sorry, brothers. I didn't realize he was the high priest. Paul replied, for the scriptures say, you must not speak evil of any of your rulers. Selah, 2020, 2021, 2022. Paul, a couple things to note there before I close. Paul realizes, or he didn't realize, excuse me, that he was standing in front of the high priest. He wouldn't have said that. He wouldn't have dishonored a leader of God's people like that or of any nation like that. How do I know that? He spoke, not spoke highly, but he told the church to be subject to those governing in authority. And he was talking about Nero, a very wicked Roman emperor. Church, let me just tell you, it's okay for us to criticize leadership. It is. It's okay to call a spade a spade. It's okay to say that's not righteousness. That is our job. We're supposed to speak truth, not in a way that it's been culturally popular. I speak truth to power. In other words, that just basically means I join the opinion of this group of people that's against that power. I'm not really speaking truth to them, but yeah, I'm with y'all. They're wicked. They're evil. Paul didn't do that. Paul recognized, wait a minute, that's a governing leader? Even if I don't honor him, I'm going to honor God's word. And he publicly apologized. I'm sorry. I shouldn't have done that. Shouldn't have done that. Another thing to note here is why didn't Paul recognize him? Some people say it was 20 years since he'd been around those men. It was a new high priest. Those were Paul's peers. Those were Paul's friends. Those were men who knew Paul and Paul knew them from 20 years prior. Some scholars believe that Paul was actually on the Sanhedrin at one point. But one of the reasons why maybe he didn't know is because Paul, it's believed, had horrible eyesight. Probably from the moment he was beat in Derby. The Bible tells us when he writes things like, I wrote, see how big the letters are that I wrote to you? He wasn't talking about the length of the letters, talking about, you see how big the letters were? Paul had eye problems. In Galatians, he told them that when I was with you, you would have gouged out your own eyes and gave them to me. Why? Because he had eye problems. So he probably couldn't even see who the guy was. But nonetheless, he honored it. And he knew God, I'm, I'm, I'm going to get to it in a second. I'm, I'm, I promise you, I'm getting there. Let's keep going. Well, let me read this, Luke chapter 12, verse 11 through 12. How did Paul know what to do? Jesus told us what to do in those moments. Jesus said, and when you are brought to trial in the synagogue and before rulers and authorities, don't worry about how to defend yourself or what to say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what needs to be said. God was going to speak through Paul to say what needed to be said. Now, let me tell you who this man Ananias was. And again, I promise I'm closing. I know the keys are here. This is my cue to stop talking. This is happening around 58 to 59 AD. That's when this is happening. This man, Ananias, was the high priest until 66 AD. If you're going to, don't miss this part. Please, whatever you do, don't miss this because this is really, this is a closing moment of history. This man served until Ananias, who was this wicked high priest, he served until 66 AD when the Jewish revolt happened, when they revolted against the Romans. What happened in 70 AD changed the landscape of the the Jewish world as we know it. The Romans came in and they destroyed the city of Jerusalem. And this temple that had been the centerpiece of their religion, the Romans destroyed it. They burned it to the ground. Remember when I said they closed the gate to Paul? 
That was Paul's last time ever seeing the temple, but it was also the temple's last time ever seeing Paul. Because God came in and judged Jerusalem. He judged the Jewish people and he judged the temple. In 70 AD, the world changed and the promise that Jesus made in Matthew chapter 24 came to pass when he said, not one stone will be left upon one another. You love this temple so much, I'm gonna tear it down. In 70 AD, he did just that. And this high priest Ananias was killed by his own people because he was that corrupt. Verse 6, Paul realized that some members of the high council were Sadducees and some were Pharisees. So he shouted, brothers, I'm a Pharisee, as were my ancestors, and I'm on trial because my hope is in the resurrection of the dead. Verse 7, this divided the council, the Pharisees against the Sadducees. They start fighting with one another. Sadducees say there's no resurrection or angels and spirits, but the Pharisees believe there is. So there was a great uproar. Some of the teachers of the religious law who were Pharisees jumped up and began to argue forcibly. We see nothing wrong with him, they shouted. Perhaps a spirit or an angel spoke to him. As the conflict grew more violent, the commander was afraid they, were, they would tear Paul apart. So he ordered his soldiers to go and rescue him by force and take him out of the fortress. Paul could shake the dust off of his hands and his feet. He did what God asked him to do. And this is how I know that this is what God wanted Paul to do because verse 11 tells us, that night the Lord appeared to Paul and said, be encouraged, Paul, just as you had been my witness here in Jerusalem, you must preach the gospel to the Romans as well. In other words, good job, Paul. You went through the hard thing. Good job. And because of that, I'm going to bring you to the thing that's in your heart the most, to preach the gospel to the center of the world, Rome. What am I telling you, church? God sees further than you see. And you never know what's on the other side of your obedience to him. Close your eyes. Let me pray for you. Father, I thank you for this. Thank you for the word of God. When you ask us to do hard things, it's because you see far beyond, God, where we're at. We have a limited perspective on the world. We have a limited perspective on our lives. We have a limited perspective on history and eternity, but you don't. You are both in the past and here and in the future at the same time. Help us to trust you. Help us to obey you and to obey your word. Help us to see the fruit and the benefit on the other side of our obedience to you. Thank you that you are sovereign and we trust you. Church, with no one looking around, you say, Pastor, I'm here today and I'm, I'm not right with God, I'm not born again. That's the first step that you need to take is to be in right standing, right relationship. What does he command us? He commands all men everywhere to repent, to turn from their sins and to follow him. And I wanna pray for you this morning if you're here and you say, Pastor, I'm not born again, but I want to be right with God. I'm going to lead you in a prayer. And it's not the prayer itself that saves you. It's your surrendered heart to Jesus and the sacrifice he made so that you could be right with God. You can be born again today. And it's a process that's as simple as ABC. A, you admit. Admit what? That you're a sinner. That you need God. That you need Jesus in your life. B, you believe that God sent Jesus to die for that sin and see you confess that from this moment on he is now Lord of your life and you're going to follow him with that life so with no one looking around on the count of three I'm going to ask you to just lift up your hand if you say pastor that's me I want to be born again I want to follow Jesus I want my sins forgiven and I'm giving him control of my life I'm saying no to my past because I want to follow him with no one looking around on the count of three I want you to lift up your hand if that's you one two Three, if that's you, lift it up. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Praise God, thank you, thank you. I see your hand back there, thank you. I see your hand back there, anyone else? Thank you, sir, I see your hand. Thank you, ma'am. Praise God. Your eternity is going to be changed in this moment. Church, I want you to pray this prayer with me. Say, dear Lord Jesus, I believe you are the Son of God. I believe on the cross, you died 
from my sin, from my guilt, and from my shame. I believe you faced hell so I would not have to go. And you rose again from the dead to give me a place in heaven, a purpose on this earth, and a relationship with the Father. I repent of my sin. I turn away from it. And I choose to follow you. And from this moment on, God, you're my Father. Jesus, you are my Lord and Savior. Holy Spirit, you're my helper. And heaven is now my home. In Jesus' name, amen. Church, come on, let's celebrate with everybody that prayed that prayer today to be born again.